0: 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse number 9. We're right in the middle of a story that's familiar. We'll talk about in just a second. It's the story of Ziklag. But the Bible said, And David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, they came to the brook Besor, where those that were left behind stayed. So there's people that couldn't cross over the brook. They were too exhausted verse number 10, David pursued he and the 400 men for 200 abode behind because they were so faint that they could not go over the brook Bezor. So a third of your army stays behind because you're exhausted. You kind of understand where you are at that point. Verse number 11, and they found an Egyptian in the field brought him to David and gave him bread and he did eat and they made him drink Water. We're going to talk a little bit about this passage today, but I I simply kind of want to formulate this with the title today An Old Enemy or a New Ally. An Old Enemy or a New Ally. Can we put our Bibles down and, as they taught us at Sunday school, calvert Tabernacle. we raise our hands to the one we love the best. Can we do that today and invite the presence of Jesus into this place and into this place right there? Father God, we love you and we praise you. We pray that you bless us and help us and touch us today. Touch each and every one of us as we invite your presence into our hearts, into our lives. Father, that we would hear your word, and not just hear it, but we would do it. We wouldn't just entertain your presence here, but you would go home with us to perform those duties that you challenge us here to do. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated today in the house of the Lord. We're reading here, of course, of the account of David at Ziklag. David Ziklag is one of the most familiar stories in the life of David. In this particular account, you'll see here the author, the prophet is either Gad or Nathan. They weave together the story, and they put the story right in the middle of a narrative, another narrative, which, of course, is the death of Saul, the first human king of Israel. If you read through 1 Samuel, You'll see in 1 Samuel chapter number 28 that Saul visits the witch of Endor, and it's there that he finds out that the uh, the Lord is going to take his life, the Bible says, tomorrow at a particular battle there in the Valley of Jezreel. That's in chapter 28. In chapter number 31, those events actually take place. Saul dies and that type of thing. But you'll see here, of course, today we read from right in the middle, we read from 1 Samuel chapter number 30. As we read the story, we of course understand that uh, we have to keep in mind how close David is to both victory as well as defeat. Both of them are very close to him in this text. The account of Ziklag is told as a story, a traditional story, in three acts, if we could think of it that way, almost like a play or a movie or something like that. The three-act story, of course, is a a narrative that composes, obviously, of of an arc. It's what they call it, of of three different scenes or acts that have a beginning, a middle, and, of course, an end. And so you'll see that in that regards. In the three-act deal, it starts like this. There's act number one, which is the setup. Act number one is where you're introduced to the characters, their world, and the conflict, right? And then you move into act two, and in act two, that's where you have the confrontation. In that confrontation, that's where the conflict intensifies, and the protagonist faces obstacles and challenges. And then in act three, you have what's called the resolution, and that's where the conflict obviously is resolved. And that particular story reaches a conclusion. And so if we were to read through 1 Samuel, if we were to take the time to study it, my wife and I both quizzed on 1 Samuel way back in the day, 1979, if I'm not mistaken, was the year. I know I don't look it, but I did have the ability of quizzing in 1979. And you'll see here the idea. My wife and her team went on to win nationals and I didn't make it out of states that year. But you'll see here, of course, uh, act number one is the setup. The setup is the rivalry between King Saul and the champion of Israel, David, has driven David out of Israel and, ironically, into the hands and into the lands of the Philistines. Believe it or not, David actually lived in Philistia for a while. And ironically, he actually served the king of Gath, a guy by the name of Achish. And you'll see there that it is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter number 27 that he basically says, you know what? Saul is not going to stop until I, he kills me, so I need to flee out of the country, out of his realm, and I need to get to the hands in the lands of the Philistines, and that they accept him And they allow him to stay with them and all of that sort of stuff. And the Bible says that David even comes to them later and says, hey, me and my men, my 600 men, we need a place that we can kind of hang out for a while. Is it all right if you give us a city that we can hang out in? We don't want to stay here in Gath. It's a royal city. We don't want to take up room in an important place. Give us a a non-important place. And so The king of Gath believes that David is totally sold out to him. And so therefore, he gives him Ziklag. And the Bible says that Ziklag pertains to the kings of Judah unto this day. And at that time, David dwelt in the country of the Philistines a full year and four months. So for 16 months, David will turn into a form of a double agent. Like, like, yeah, like that, like he is, he's fighting, quote unquote, for the Philistines or with the Philistines, but actually he fights the enemies of Israel, and so he's actually fighting for the good of Israel. He's with the Philistines, but he's fighting for the good of Israel. And you could see here that this works for a while until the king of Gath, And all the other kings uh, of Philistia, the warlords, if you would, of Philistia, bound together, and they are going to have a full-on assault of Israel up in the north in the valley of Jezreel, also known as Megiddo, also known as Megiddo. So they're getting ready for the full-blown deal, and you can see that this puts David and his men in a bind because one of two things has to happen. Either David is gonna fight with the Philistines against Israel, which David can't do, David won't do, or David is gonna have to basically, um, he's gonna have to reveal exactly who and what his men are, and that's gonna jeopardize their life and their situation. The lives of he and his men will be forfeit at that point in time. However, what you can see here is that David doesn't have to say a thing. The king of Gath determines to take him with it, but the other warlords of Philistia say, no, 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 he's not going to go into battle with us. We don't trust him. We think he's going to turn on us. All this is part of a setup. Everybody hang with me just a little bit. He says that uh, uh, if you would, all of this is, uh, the kings of Philistia say, no, no, we don't trust him. In battle, he's going to turn against us. That's probably exactly what would have happened. And so the king of Caiaphas has to come to David and say, I'm sorry, we don't need you. You need to go back home. You could see here that David kind of says, well, what have I done? You kind of offend me. How dare you? How dare they talk that way about me? <laughs> but you'll see here that Achish says, no, 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 it's not me. It's, it's not you. It's them. That's the way you do it at family reunions, right? It's not, I don't have a problem with you. It's they have a problem with you. You need to leave. Okay, so you see at this point in time that David and his men, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter number 29, verse number 11. So David and his men rose up early to depart in the morning and to return into the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And that, of course, will lead us to the next verse, which is 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse number one. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, three days of travel, three days of journey. They were supposed to fight a battle the first day. They didn't fight it. They were sent home. They traveled for three days. That they now come on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded from the south And Ziklag, and had smitten Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and taken the women captives, they that were therein. They slew not any, neither great nor small, but carried them away and went on their way. Much in the same way as what has happened in Israel, except they did kill people, but taking them hostage or captive, if you would. And that, of course... In my mind, in the, in the film or in the play, they come over a hill and they see Ziklag on fire. See what I'm saying? You see it in your minds right now. They come over three days of journey. They come over that hill and they're watching it on fire and then it goes dark. And that's the end of scene one, act one. Now we go into act two, which of course is the confrontation As they come in a ziklag and they realize that, yes, they burned the homes and that sort of stuff, but the people are gone. There's no dead bodies anywhere. And the Bible says in chapter 30, verse number 4, this is is really bad right here. I don't know if you know this. Sometimes we talk about David as as if he never faced difficult time, but 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse number 4, and David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept. They wept until they had no more power to weep. That these people lifted up their voice, and as they begin to weep, they lost the ability to cry anymore. That's how exhausted that they were. Now, this, of course, should remind us, right, if we read all the way through 1 Samuel, this kind of voiceless weeping, this impowerful this weeping should... Remind us of, of a prayer that somebody prayed at the beginning of the book, a, a woman by the name of Samuel who prayed a voiceless prayer at the beginning that she cried until she had lost the voice, uh, the, the ability of speaking. And so now we can see that, of course, this is right before the birth of Samuel. If, if we're kind of following things, we know something great is about to happen, but it doesn't look that way. Verse number six of chapter 30, David was greatly distressed and the people that were with him, the Bible says, because the people that were with him spake of stoning him. Think about that. The great champion is not going to be killed by Saul or by the Philistines or by anybody else. He's going to be killed by his own men. As if, Talking against the pastor has only happened, it it doesn't happen in Arkadelphia. I don't think it happens in, I'm not even sure it happens in Arkansas, but I've heard it happen other places. Why is that? Because their soul, people's soul gets so broken, so wounded, so hurt, loss cuts so deep. Cut so deep that they hate any and everybody, even their leadership that loves them and has cared for them and has also lost something. It's at that point in time that you can see things begin to turn. David encourages himself in the Lord his God. He springs into action. And so the first thing he does is he prays. He talks to the Lord and he actually talks to the Lord through the priest through the priest that wears the ephod, and he asked the Lord, should I pursue the Amalekites, the people that have taken my family, the people that have taken our family, the family of the 600? The Bible lets us understand that at that point in time, the Lord tells him to pursue, and that if he does pursue, that he will overtake them, and that they will, without fail, recover all the word of the lord has spoken oh that feels so good Woo! now you still are running on fumes how many are understand what i'm talking about you've got the word but now you're running on fumes Right, You've traveled for three days after you were supposed to fight a battle. You travel for three days. You come home. You weep until you have no more power to weep anymore. Then you get up and you start going after the enemy. And so that leads us to our text that we read this morning, that they come to the Brook Bezor, which is actually down there, actually down in, in, in the middle of the desert. And as they're coming to that point, when they go to ford that particular Brook of Bezor, a third of his army can't go. Now, let me ask you, how tired, how exhausted are you that your family is being held captive and you can't cross the brook? We are looking at a perilous situation here that a third of David's army, a small army of 600 men, this is not a large army, right? 600 men is now broken down into 400 and David the one. Things seem hopeless. Yes, they have the word of the Lord. Without doubt, they will recover all. But it's hard to believe that somebody at that point in time is not doubting. So you can see here that things begin to look hopeless. And then there is a game changer. In verse number 11, the Bible says they found an Egyptian in the field. You all know about the Egyptians, right? Boo, hiss. Those are the old enemies. Those were the guys with the whips and the guys with the chains. They were the guys with the... I don't know if you heard about the plagues. They were bad. The guys with the exes, the ancient enemies... Can you imagine what went through these guys' mind when they found this Egyptian in the field? I, I No doubt that there was somebody, I don't know, redneck, something like that, that David had among his 400 men traveling with him that have lost their families. And people that had actually spoke of stoning David find an ancient adversary, an ancient enemy. And it's like, oh, come on now. All my frustration, all my angst, all my fears, all that I have pent up inside of me is gonna go into thumping this guy right now. There is gonna beat down like there's never been before. But David doesn't do any of that. David, instead, when he finds this guy, he gives him water, he makes him drink water, and he gives him food. He doesn't just give him food. He keeps giving him food. We find out that he gives him a piece of a cake of figs. That's like a Fig Newton right there. Gives him a piece of Fig Newton. Long before there was a Newton, there was a Fig Newton. Never forget that. And two clusters of raisins. And what he had eaten, the Bible says, his spirit comes back into him because he had not eaten bread nor drunk any water for three days and three nights. And then he begins to open his mouth. And as he opens his mouth, you can see here that David begins to question. After he is fed with the army's meager provisions, David begins to question this new POW. To whom belongest thou? Whence art thou? In verse number 13, he said, I am a young man of Egypt. I'm a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me because three days ago, gone. I fell sick. And we made an invasion upon the south. We came up from the coast that belonged to Judah. And we came to the south of Caleb and we burned Ziklag with fire. I was there. Can can you imagine? Have you been hangry before? Have you been upset? Have you been tired? Have you just kind of blown it off of, well, I'm having a bad day because I'm tired. I'm having a bad day because I've suffered some loss. Have you told somebody off and as soon as you did, you just felt like a piece of garbage because he's like, I don't really mean all that. It's just, can you imagine listening to this guy say, I was there. I was their aid. I was their help. I I served them. And in fact, I was their ally. And and to be honest with you, sir, I probably still would be. Three days ago, Something happened in me. I fell sick. And when I fell sick, I lost there for a little while temporarily my value to them. They abandoned me in the desert like a piece of garbage. And they thought so little of me that they did not even leave a canteen of water for me to drink. Let's be honest here. If David's men spake of stoning their champion, there must have been somebody in favor of killing this ancient enemy. But David did not respond that way. Instead, he asked him one simple question. Can you help us? Can you help us get back the things that we have lost? Can you help us recover our families? Can you help us recover? Can you bring us down to the company? He says. You can see here that the young man of Egypt understands that he has just a little piece of information that is vital to David. And so he plays it for all it's worth. He says, I can and I will bring you down, but only under two conditions. Number one, don't kill me. And number two, don't turn me back over to them. They left me. They treated me. They revealed what they really were. And now don't turn me back over to them and don't kill me yourself. You can see here, of course, that that is the end of Act 2. Now you have Act 3, the resolution. In the resolution, the young Egyptian does indeed live up to his words. He brings them to the camp of the Amalekite. The battle is actually only one verse long. Simply put, for 24 glorious hours, David and his men wreak havoc upon the enemy. They rescue their families, and they truly indeed recover all. There was nothing, the scripture says, nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters nor spoils nor anything that had been taken from them. David recovered all. Pretty soon, within a matter of days, they are back in Ziklag. All 600 of them, they even go back and pick up the guys they dropped off. They get back to Ziklag. They have a party. Reunited, and it feels so good. And you can see here that it's there in Ziklag. In just a couple of days, David will find out about the outcome of the battle that he missed up in Jezreel. And how that Saul was taken and is now dead. And now he himself, David, is the unrivaled champion and king first over the tribe of Judah and then eventually the entire nation of Israel and it all begins and ends for us at this place called Ziklag. A story in three acts, but the question I have for you today is what was the climax of the story some would say the battle, it's really kind of anticlimactic. It's a foregone conclusion. It's only one verse about that. No, the climax of the story is the tipping point. It is the key person of that story, and that key person of the story was that piece of garbage, if you would, that which had been rejected or thrown away by others. That now is revealed to be for Israel and for Judah and for David and for his men. The very key to the whole thing. That's the climax of the story. The idea of that ancient enemy that is instead a new ally to bring them into that which they have lost. Young people, your pastor told you something today. Life is hard. that sometimes in our lives, more often than not, we suffer loss. Paul said it this way, the loss of all things. Disappointments come. Oh, I, I wish I was in a Pentecostal church with people that told the truth. Pente- that, that disappointments come. That sometimes things are taken away from us. That the enemy does what he does best. He comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he steals your joy and he kills your dreams and he destroys your family. I got saints of the Most High God that are holding on to the promises because they have trained up a child in the way he should go, but the enemy has come in and taken something from you. And in loss and in pain, sometimes hatred will begin to dominate our life, and it will color our thinking. We soon begin to hate anyone and everyone that is connected to our loss and to our pain, no matter how slight or tenuous the connection. You know, I, I've, I've heard people talk against the church. How many you ever heard anybody talk against the church? Did I, did I ever tell you, did, I, did, did somebody ever tell you the idea that the church is when they're talking about the church, they're not talking about the building? They were talking about the people of the church. Guess what they're talking about when they're talking to you about the church? They're talking about you. (laughs) They're telling you how disappointed they are in you because of something you did or didn't do. Sometimes it boils over into social strifes. And soon the hate becomes so strong that we will hate entire groups or races of people. We'll hate the drug addict. We'll hate the gang member. We'll hate the alcoholic. I, I saw Celebrate Recovery here. That, that's good. But you know what that means? That means alcoholics start showing up here. And then pretty soon people go, what are, we, what are we doing that for? I lost my son to alcohol. What are we doing bringing a bunch of alcoholics in to be with our young people? We'll hate the prisoner and we'll hate the immigrant. Sometimes in our bitterness, we can even say the same things that David's men must have said or felt. What are we doing helping those people? Why are we feeding them? Why are we giving those kids cookies? Why are we giving them water? Why should we just let them be? We don't have to help them, but surely we can just go by this guy, let nature take its course. Let him die. After all, it's all about retribution, isn't it? And I can hear the words of David coming about, no, it's not about retribution. It's about Recovery. I said, it's about recovery. The revival that you're praying for might be found in the very person that darkens the door of the church that somehow becomes the key of the revival for your family. That ancient enemy that now becomes the new ally to fight with you against the very forces of darkness. And it's not just about their recovery, as we celebrate recovery. It's not just about the recovery of that prisoner or that alcoholic or that drug addict. It could be celebrating our recovery as they bring home with them the things that have been taken from us. Some of us, we've lost our joy, and you know what we need to do? We need to find some people. We need to bring them into this house. We need to pray them through the Holy Ghost, and we pray them through the Holy. When you pray somebody through to the Holy Ghost, you taught a Bible study, you will recover your joy like you've never had it before. See, I, I know you've lost something but others have too. I know that you hate this world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, but you're not the only one that hates the enemy. You think you, <laughs> you think you hate the Amalekites? There's an Egyptian that has laid there without food or water for three days, and he really hates him, some Amalekites. see, the fact of the matter is the publicans and sinners can become a never-flagging army against evil more than the self-seeking, self-serving, self-righteous good people like the Pharisees and the scribes. The fact is that the delivered drug addict hates drugs more than you ever will. I said the alcoholic hates alcohol more than you ever will. I said the young woman that has been trafficked knows the real effects of pornography and will become a champion for morality more than any caring Karen ever could. You have to understand that the prodigal that still reeks of the pig pen will know the true value of Father's house. The true value of Father's house. More than any of the elder brothers who never leave the house, at least in presence but have in spirit and they will understand those prodigals that the love and acceptance they feel here is something that money can't buy and the lack of it can't lose see some of you have bought it somebody listen to me I I'm gonna say it some of you have bought the lie that the only reason you're of value here is because you're a contributing member to this church. And if you would understand that your value is beyond that of pocketbook and of finances, that you have a value to the kingdom of God, you, there's a joy that could be restored to you. Because God loves the cheerful giver. He'll take money from a grump. But he loves the cheerful giver. Scripture was clear. He said, You only ask people who are willing to give. You give willingly as unto the Lord. Let us say this, and I'm coming toward a conclusion today. While we may or may not be David, we may never find ourselves in David's situation. Where we find ourselves at a place like that. We may never find that Egyptian exactly like that. Maybe we won't be David, but all of us will be or have been that young Egyptian with nothing. You see, I have nothing to offer this kingdom really. Three days ago, I ran out of strength. The world, drugs, alcohol, pornography left me. And my enemy found me. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 refers to us as the enemies of God. And he simply asked me this when he found me, when he found you, can you help me recover my lost children? Can you help me? We've lost the prodigal. Can you help me recover? When he asks you that, he asks me that, I can simply say, will. But you have to promise me two things. Number one, you'll never leave me or forsake me. And number two, you'll never abandon me back to the thing that you pulled me out of. The greatest preacher in the prisons is not the goody-two-shoes that has never been, oh, no, it's that guy that knows what the inside feels like when that, that door slams behind him and the hopes and the dreams of the families of gone. And on the inside realize how broken they are because we believe this gospel can turn souls of Tarsus into Apostle Paul's. We believe that this Jesus can transform the fornicator and the idolater and the adulterer and the effeminate and the abusers of themselves with mankind and the thief and the covetous, and the drunkard, and the reviler, and the extortioner, into the such were some of you, into the washed, into the sanctified, into the justified, by his name, by his spirit. Today's a special day for me. Let's talk about me Today is, or would be, I don't know how that goes, the 80th anniversary of my parents' wedding. If you do your math, 80 years ago, that's the middle of World War II. My mother was 18 years old and she was a military bride. Newly married to my father after about six weeks of them riding back and forth to one another. He was in the war, serving on a sub-chaser, a converted yacht by the name of a sylph. Brother Larson used to tease my dad about being part of McHale's Navy. That's an old reference for some of you about a TV show, about a guy by the name of Ernest Borgdine. Because my dad actually served with Ernie on that yacht. Chasing subs in the Atlantic. Testing radar for the very first time. While he's doing that, my mother's in Indianapolis, Indiana. I heard Brother Price talk about his his grandmother. I don't mean any offense to my family tree at all. But I never heard my grandma pray. Pray. You could have held a gun to my grandmother's head to have her quote what Acts 2:38 said and she couldn't tell you any word of it at all. Not about Peter, not about repentance, not about baptism, definitely nothing about the Holy Ghost. My grandfather on my mom's side was an alcoholic. My father was an orphan. They did not know how to live. The older I live, the more I think about them, but I don't think of them as old people. I think of them as young. I think of their upbringings and their struggles. I think what the guts it took for my mom to walk into a church called Calvary Tabernacle. And I think of the vulnerability she had when she did. And how that when he came back from the war, he joined her. And if you were to look there on that second or third row, you could look into them, you would not see anything of potential. Broken people with broken lives. coming back from a war with Germany with a name like Wachstetter. But somehow a church loved them. It took an ancient enemy and made it into an ally. packing their bags right now to go back to Sao Paulo, Brazil to reach 20 million people for the name of Jesus in this gospel. And my brothers and sister and myself, we've ministered in many churches from Dan to Beersheba, missions trips and all that stuff. All of that was present Some of you have lost some things. I don't have to be a prophet like Brother Price talked about. I just have to be a student of human nature. But I will tell you that the way of recovery is not through hate. But the way of recovery is to find that Egyptian. A person that's coming in here that doesn't look like they have any potential at all. That might be the very person God uses to bring your, your broken new listen to me. That might be the person. I want us to stand together today. If you've never lost anything, this isn't for you today. If you've had all your prayers answered, great. David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. He's not wrong, but pretty close. As Paul would say, cast down but not destroyed. And that little kid that you give a cookie to may one day stand in this pulpit preach to your grandchildren the only saving message and the only saving name and the one Lord and one faith and one baptism of one God and Father of all who's above all, through all and in you all. But it's going to start off by you doing that which is somewhat against your nature. David did it but a generation later Solomon would say it he said therefore if that enemy hunger feed him and if he thirst you give him water to drink for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head and the Lord will reward thee I believe there's a reward in here for somebody can you lift a hand right now not lost anybody that's, but if you've lost something and you're looking for it, you might find it in the waters of baptism, not in yours, but as the waters are troubled today in that new convert, if you'd like to come, I think it'd be appropriate for us to come together and pray. We pray for our recovery. Can you pray for a little bit for the grace and for the mercy to accept the young Egyptian and to help transform them from that enemy into your ally? together right now Father God we love you and we praise you Father in the name of Jesus I pray for peace to sweep over this place and grace to sweep over this place and mercy to sweep over this place but not just mercy for us but mercy that is overflowing as your servant David said my cup runneth over What does that mean? It means what you pour into me isn't even staying in me anymore. That it's flowing into the things around me. Can you make somebody's cup overflow with mercy and with joy and with compassion? As we're reaching new folk, as we have dreams to invest in a Spanish work or Something along that line, I, I don't know, but if that be your purpose, can we, can we somehow see beyond our immediate hurts and pains and see into the future? Can we pray for people like in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where, no, they don't speak Spanish, they speak Portuguese, but they need Jesus as well. Touch us today, Jesus. Oh, somebody pray with me right now. Touch us today, Jesus. Touch us today, Jesus. Touch us today, Jesus. Let me recover all. But I need an ally to help me. I need a prayer partner. I need somebody that hates this thing. Lord Jesus, right now, that if the effeminate show up, we're not gonna chase them off, but we're gonna turn them into a warrior for the cross. And hallelujah, hallelujah, there's gonna be an exodus that comes. And when we are free, the records of the past will perish with us. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. We love you today, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.